it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall dream dreams, your old men shall see visions. Joel 2, 28. Welcome to In Her Image, a podcast where we are seeking and celebrating our mother God through scripture, scholarship, the arts, and everyday life. I'm Kate. I'm here with my co-host, Jess Burdett. Hi. And tonight we have a guest, a friend of ours, Aspen Moore, um, who is just the sweetest person that I know. She just has such a wonderful, beautiful spirit. And Aspen has a love of language and of words. She works as an editor and this love of words helps her to dive deeper into the scriptures. She has an account on Instagram where she explores come follow me with a focus on finding heavenly mother and divine feminine symbols, um, throughout the scriptures. So, um, Aspen, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be talking with you tonight. We are too. And, uh, we're trying to catch you right before you go into spontaneous labor. That's right. I am about to pop. (laughs) (laughs) I know that feeling. That's, that's really exciting. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Just excited to um, to meet my baby. <laughs> yeah. We're excited that we could squeeze this interview in right before your life gets turned upside right. down. Thank you. So our first question, you know, we just love to get some background. Um, we'd love to hear your story about when you first started to seek Heavenly Mother and, and then kind of go into actually finding her in the scriptures. What instigated that for you? Yeah, so I first started um, really thinking about Heavenly Mother about six or seven years ago um, when I was a student at BYU. And I don't remember exactly what brought it on, but suddenly I just felt this really, really deep absence. Um, it suddenly just kind of occurred to me like, oh, we have this this Heavenly Mother and we just don't talk about her and somehow I'm supposed to become like her, but I don't know anything about her. Um, And it was a really painful time for me. I think I was just very confused about the, the lack of information. I, I just wondered why she wasn't in the scriptures, why, you know, we didn't tend to talk about her at church very much. And at that time there was really nobody else I knew um, who kind of was was looking at those same questions in the way that so many people are today. Um, and I was in women's chorus at BYU. And I think that same semester, um, we had a concert that was all about Mary, actually, the mother of Jesus. And so we had several songs that were that were about Mary as the queen of heaven or um just this kind of casting her almost as this divine mother figure is how is how I was seeing it and suddenly it just kind of just kind of hit me like oh um Mary is one way that we can see what heavenly mother is like um so there was kind of that bright spark of something there for for a little while and it didn't really quite satisfy my my curiosity and my hunger to to know Heavenly Mother. Um, And so it wasn't until a few years later during COVID, (laughs) somehow everyone just during COVID, um, things came up for for a lot of people I know. And it was just um, time for me to to learn a little bit more. And I kind of stumbled across this article. It's called Nephi and His Asherah by Daniel C. Peterson. it's about um, the tree of life vision in the Book of Mormon and how the tree of life may be um, this representation of a divine mother figure. Um, highly recommend it if um, those listening haven't read it. 
And so that kind of set me on this path of approaching the scriptures um, with an eye toward looking for symbols of Heavenly Mother. Because from that, from those two things, from seeing her in Mary and in the Tree of Life, I found that um, she was showing up in places that I had never seen before. Um, There were all these symbols and people and concepts in scripture that um, I think have something to teach us about Heavenly Mother. And so I just kind of started discovering all these different um, symbols that were so meaningful to me. Um, So things like um, the dove or different forms of water or um, trees just in general, or um, especially um, different women in the scriptures really taught me a lot about her. So is this about the time that you created your Instagram account, Seeking Her Wisdom? So that came um, a little bit later after I had kind of just um, had all of these experiences. I feel like just week after week, you know, I was just reading along with Come Follow Me and things would just keep like standing out to me. And I was like, I feel like I need to share this somehow. (laughs) Like, I'm sure that there are other people who are hungry for this kind of thing um, because you know, there can be some big um, points of pain in in this journey of, of seeking Heavenly Mother. And, you know, one, one is that it's it can sometimes be hard to see her in the scriptures or in um, a lot of our discourse at church where, where she's not directly mentioned. It can be difficult to see her and um, come to know her and what she's like. And so um, c- kind of, you know, what I... Um, what I want to share is that I think that she is in scripture, not always directly, but I think there are a lot of ways that um, we can come to see her, a lot of symbols that point to her. That's awesome. I'm so glad that you started your Instagram account. It's still one of my favorites. Um, If you're not following Aspen yet, it's seeking.her.wisdom. And she shares so many insights from Come Follow Me, especially that I just Like even, you know, I think about the Divine Feminine Heavenly Mother a lot, but yet every single post I see of Aspen's, it just pulls together things that I had never thought of before and it puts things in a totally new light and you do a lot of research. Um, Each post you're citing where you got your information and you're just pulling things together and like putting them together in such a way that is really um, insightful and beautiful. So I'm really grateful that you started that account and decided to share all this wisdom that you're gaining with the world. It's awesome. I was going to say, as I've like looked through your, watched your account, I have, I commented recently, like you should turn this into a book. So here I am, I'm publicly challenging you (laughs) to take all that work you did and like, you know, make an Old Testament book, make a New Testament book. Did you do the Doctrine and Covenants before? I started like at the end of Doctrine and Covenants. So I have like a a few from there, but that would be amazing. (laughs) Would love to do that, but we'll see. (laughs) Someday, someday maybe. So before we started recording, uh, we talked about approaching what it means to become like Heavenly Mother. And there, you know, you mentioned that there's symbols and titles that are given to women in the scriptures. So how did you, like, what titles did you start noticing that were given to women in the scriptures? And how does that teach you about Heavenly Mother? Yeah, so I think that sometimes it can be difficult to see any meaningful way for um, women to become like her if we don't know what an exalted female being might be like. Um, there are plenty of quotes from different prophets and, and church leaders about her, but I feel like a lot of the time um, they're kind of limited by our own, you know, cultural biases. And it just kind of feels like she's there, you know, behind the scenes in the background. And um, I don't want that. Like, that's just not 
an expansive enough definition for what a a goddess is, right? I don't want this extremely limited understanding um, kind of based on a view of women that's developed throughout history. It kind of clouds our perception of what it really means to become like God. Um, And so I think that she is greater and more expansive than any one title or any one way of seeing her. And so, you know, we have all of these different titles of Jesus and Heavenly Father. You can probably think of like five or six just right off the top of your head. Um, And we don't limit their, their roles to just one single title. And so I think the same should be true for Heavenly Mother. And sometimes I like don't even use that term because it it almost comes with like a little bit of baggage. And so other titles that we might approach her with are wisdom or um, mother God, goddess even, uh, queen of heaven, the great mother, tree of life, and so on. There are are really a lot of them. Um, And so I kind of want to talk about how we ourselves can discover a path to become like our mother in heaven by kind of seeing some of the paths that women in the scriptures have taken through the roles of prophetess, priestess, and queen. Uh, We give the titles prophet, priest, and king to Jesus, and we probably feel comfortable giving those to Heavenly Father as well. So I think that it makes sense to approach Heavenly Mother in this same way as this like archetype of female divinity using um, those similar titles. And those might sound familiar if you've been through the temple, right? We're promised that we can become um, priestesses and queens. Um, When uh, the Relief Society was organized in Nauvoo, Joseph Smith said that he intended to turn this into a society of kings and priests, right? Um, The female equivalent words (laughs) are queens and priestesses. And so those are... Um, yeah, just some different titles that I that I want to explore. So the first one I want to look at is prophetess, actually. And that's not something we're necessarily promised in the same way, but I think this term is a lot more broadly applicable than we realize. And the spirit of prophecy enables us to seek truth about Heavenly Mother from the divine source. Um, in Hebrew, the word translated as prophet is Nabi. I hope I'm saying these words right. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. <laughs> That's why I rely on a lot of scholars, but I don't know Hebrew myself. So bear with me. <laughs> um, so Nabi uh, comes from a root word meaning to bubble up or spring forth, like from a fountain. And the female form is Nabiya. And so the only difference in meaning comes from just adding that feminine ending just means a female prophet. And so prophecy as a means of springing forth like a fountain um, with the divine word was open to both men and women for the Israelites, if we're looking at um, the Bible and in surrounding cultures as well. Um, In Greek, if we're looking at the New Testament, the word is prophetes, um, which means an interpreter or proclaimer of the divine will. So a similar idea. Um, In looking at different prophets and prophetesses, um, kind of to to define what that is, it's somebody who proclaims messages from God. Um, They uncover and declare hidden knowledge. A lot of the time they speak about, uh, um, they speak out against social injustice and class distinctions. So if you think about like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they're always talking about um, kind of creating a more just society. Um. They speak on behalf of God as mediators of the divine word. And what's kind of interesting is that there's no question within the context of um, the stories of different prophetesses about their authority or their gift um, as prophetesses. It's only later that readers come in and say, oh, well, she's not like really a prophet. Um, She just kind of has this, you know, ability or something like that. So like if you look in the topical guide um, or other like LDS study helps, they really, really downplay the role of female prophets. Um, There's like this long flowery entry about about male prophets. And then for female prophets, it's like, oh, they're not like really (laughs) prophets. Um, But there's the Bible doesn't do this at all. There's just like, yep, she's a prophetess and she's proclaiming the word of God and 
it's like not even a question. Um, and so that's like one way that our, our cultural biases can, can get in the way of, of kind of coming to a greater understanding. Totally. I'm reading, um, the making of biblical womanhood right now. I don't know if you've read that one, but yeah, it's, it's so awesome to, you know, to understand just where all those biases come from, where, where our interpretation of the scriptures have kind of come from. And then it's really kind of cringe when you read that, um, topical guide. (laughs) That's just like, she, women prophetesses were, you know, either the the wife of a prophet or just someone kind of special, but doesn't have, you know, isn't like a a male prophet. Right. Right. Um, can you give an example of like a, a prophetess in the scriptures? Yes, I can give you many. <laughs> um, mm. There are um, a lot more male than female prophets in the Bible. Um, I think in general, there are just more male characters mentioned, right? But um, the gift of prophecy is not tied to gender. Um, they really both serve the same functions. Um so there are five women in the Old Testament who are specifically called um, prophetesses, and those are Miriam, Deborah, the wife of Isaiah, Huldah, and Noadiah. And then Jewish tradition actually honors a few more. They also recognize Sarah, Hannah, Abigail, and Esther. Um, in the New Testament, we have Anna and the four daughters of Philip who are said to prophesy. And um, there are other women who prophesy as well. They just don't necessarily, um, they're not necessarily called like you are a prophetess. Um, and these women are looked to as sources of truth, wisdom, and spiritual guidance. Um, their words are authoritative too. And so one of my favorite examples is Deborah, um, because she is one of those prophets who kind of does it all, right? She's like, kind of the equivalent of Moses in her, in her reach. Um, so she is a judge of Israel and is really highly regarded for giving counsel. Um, she holds court under a palm tree and that's significant because, um, palm trees in particular were, um, sacred to, um, different goddesses in this area. And so it's, it's almost presenting Deborah as kind of this image of a goddess who is like bestowing her wisdom on people. Um, she's a deliverer of Israel from their enemies, um, almost acting as a type of Messiah, right? Who, who delivers us from death. And she works in partnership with a man named Barak to lead the Israelites to victory. And he respects her leadership and he's basically like, yeah, like I'm with you. <laughs> Um, and then, um, another, another interesting aspect of Deborah, um, a lot of prophetesses are composers of poetry and song. And Deborah is one of those. So the song of Deborah in Judges 5 is considered a victory hymn. Um, this was specifically a women's performance genre. And so it's something that women would perform after victory in battle with singing and dancing and playing instruments. Um, so almost kind of this ritualized performance of like this prophetic song. Um, these types of songs were not performed by men. And so we also see victory songs composed by Miriam and Hannah and later um, Mary in the New Testament, um, which I think marks them as prophetesses as well through song. Um, and one of the most interesting parts of this song is when she bestows upon herself the title of mother in Israel. She says, um, the inhabitants of the villages seized, they seized in Israel until that I, Deborah, arose, that I arose a mother in Israel. Um, which I think is so beautiful. And I, I don't think that this is talking about her being a mother of children at all. Um, I think it's used more in the sense of an honorific title for a woman who is really highly respected in her community. Um, and I think she is bestowing this title on herself um, as a way of kind of claiming her authority as a woman called of God. Um, she she realizes that she holds that within her as a mother in Israel. And this 
type of maternal care, um, like other prophets, also involves giving wise counsel, um, liberating the oppressed, and providing protection for worker people. We want to look at an example in the Restoration, probably uh, one we're the most familiar with is Eliza R. Snow. And she actually kind of played some of the same functions. Um, she was uh, called a prophetess. Um, she was also a composer of song, right? She was instrumental, actually, in helping us understand the reality of having, um, in her words, a mother there, right? Um, and so I think it takes the gifts of a lot of different prophetesses to speak and sing of this truth of Heavenly Mother. And I think we're... Um, currently seeing that work in progress. Oh, another thing about Eliza, um, she, um, I would also say that she's a mother in Israel. She never had any children, but she was really um, highly respected for her wisdom, for her leadership. Um, she is a woman of authority in the mirror image of Deborah. She is like, I don't know, in my mind, <laughs> kind of a modern Deborah. That's so cool. I love hearing just woman after woman from different dispensations and how prophetic they have been and how like song is involved in it. I think that's cool that there's a unique aspect to the female prophets that they have this, they write song or poetry. That's just really neat. And it's got my mind thinking of all these people who, all these women who I know currently who I'm like, Kate is totally a prophetess and I've seen so many other women perform similar functions. I mean, maybe they haven't liberated an entire people from like an impending enemy. Or maybe we have. <laughs> or maybe we have. I don't know. <laughs> I was having the same feeling, like just the swelling in my heart, just thinking of how many prophetesses we've had on this podcast, artists, like thinking of this, the gift of prophecy, as you said, coming through art, whether it's painting or songwriting or poetry or yeah, expounding the scriptures. I mean, yeah, that's, that's beautiful to think about. Um, I guess that's the example of how we can then claim those titles as well. I think so. I think so. Kind of expressing that um, that gift of prophecy and maybe comes in different ways to, to different people. Um, so the next one I wanted to talk about is priestess. And a priest or a priestess is a person who performs sacred ritual functions to maintain the relationship between God and humans. And so they can represent God in ritual actions toward humans or the other way around. They can represent humans before God. Um, and so they kind of overlap a little bit in, in function with prophets. They both mediate between God and humans in some way. Um, but priests were more given to carrying out like sacred rituals, um, whereas prophets fulfilled more of a role of delivering um, oracles or, or messages from God. In ancient Israel, if we're looking at the, the Old Testament, again, priests were descendants of Levi through Aaron, who officiated in the temple. Um, they, did th they did things like performing sacrifices and presenting offerings, um, burning incense, things like that um, in the temple. Um, and what's kind of interesting is that unlike um, prophets and prophetesses, there's only a word for male priests in the Old Testament. A male priest was called a Kohen, but there is not a female counterpart. Um, and that's actually an anomaly in surrounding cultures. Um, there were like official roles for priestesses in their kind of like official religions. Um, usually the queen was considered a high priestess and most priestesses were devoted to goddesses and richly represented a goddess in these ritual ceremonies. Um, and so it's just kind of like almost this conspicuous absence um, in the Bible. Um, so, for example, in Hittite culture, which was nearby, there were um, like different tiers, different classes of priestesses. Um, 
And so they had different different names and different functions that they carried out. And one of the main classes was um, they were called Divine Mother. That was the name of this type of priestess. Um, queens were also given this title. And we're going to talk about queens later. <laughs> um, and there were others who were called wise woman or seer. And we see others who were also um, ritual singers and dancers. So kind of like the prophetess. Um, a lot of the time, the queen functioned as a priestess in uh, representing a female deity in relation to the king who would represent a male deity. So they represented a divine couple. Um, and so it's thought that perhaps priestesses represented a female deity in Israel, too, at some point. Um, but as this female deity was kind of downplayed and kind of uh, written out of the story, um, during the Deuteronomist reforms, um, women's involvement in these functions was kind of gradually reduced and removed. And so we just don't really see it in the text anymore um, because they didn't want to necessarily allude to this mother god who who may have been worshipped there before. Um, there's actually evidence that some of the text was deliberately manipulated to kind of downplay um women's priestly authority and to kind of make it look like it had always been that way when that wasn't really the case. Um, and so one example of this is Miriam and Miriam is a prophetess. Um, we don't have any priestesses mentioned, but we do have prophetesses. And so some scholars think that um, some of the women who are called prophetesses were actually also priestesses they just didn't want to like name them as such um so a lot of the time you know like deborah they're connected to a sacred tree or um they um kind of have these other aspects of representing um this mother god so um while we don't have any overt references to priestesses we do have prophetesses and queens and other um, female spiritual leaders that might reveal something about what the role of a priestess might be. Um, and so one example is Miriam. She is established as a prophet alongside Moses and Aaron. And um, scholars think that there are kind of multiple different traditions that once existed um, before it kind of came down in, in its current form um, that we have in the Bible. And in one version of this tradition, they were more equal um, as these three like prophets who were leading. And then in the tradition that we have, Moses is kind of the, the head guy, right? Um, and so Miriam is a Levite. So she is a member of the priestly lineage. Um, and like Deborah, she also expressed the divine word through song. And um and so, so it's called the Song of the Sea. It celebrates the safe passage of the Israelites through the Red Sea. And it's typically been attributed to Moses, um, but this was a victory song. And um, if you remember, victory songs were pretty much only performed by women. And so it's thought that it's likely that Miriam composed this song and led a group of women in this ritual song and dance to commemorate their passing through the Red Sea. And so this is a, um, you know, she's leading people in ritual here. This is um, like a priestly act. Um, and then there's also this narrative where Miriam and Aaron question some of Moses's actions and kind of assert that they're equal to him in prophetic ability. Um, and then as a punishment, Miriam is cursed with leprosy, which renders her ritually impure. And there, it doesn't say anything about Aaron. For some reason, only Miriam is punished and which is which is a little weird <laughs> um but she's sent out from the camp for seven days um, which is the time of purification and this is the same length of time set aside for the consecration of a priest um the ceremony for a person with leprosy to re-enter the congregation involved anointing the person with blood and oil on the ear hand and foot and this was actually the same ritual enacted in the anointing to priesthood and so um, some scholars think there's kind of this underlying like shadow narrative of this story um, where Miriam shows us this gradual 
um, kind of exclusion of the priestess in ancient Israel. Um, and so it's almost like Miriam was too important to just like forget entirely. And so they kind of had to show, oh, like she wasn't all that great. Um, but really kind of lying behind it, um, it might be a reinterpretation of this alternate tradition where she was anointed as a priestess. Um, and so it just kind of like leaves a lot of questions. It's like, oh, like what were they, what were they afraid of? <laughs> why, why did they not want to like recognize Miriam as a priestess? Um, so just kind of something interesting to, wow. to think about. That's amazing. Another, another example, if we look at the New Testament, I think is Mary Magdalene. A lot of aspects of temple ritual have themes from the creation narrative and then like the fall and atonement. Um, and so if we look at Adam and Eve as like a priest and a priestess in the garden of Eden, where the tree of life is kind of at this, this sacred center guarded by cherubim. Um, I see some parallels with, with Mary Magdalene actually. And there are people who like know a whole lot more about this than me. Um, but um, so first we see Mary like anointing Christ prior to his crucifixion. So that's kind of one aspect of, of anointing. Um, and then Mary Magdalene enters the garden tomb where Christ's body lay, which is guarded by angels. Um, so Christ himself, right, is the way to eternal life. He is the presence of God. And so they're kind of approaching this, this inner sanctuary, um, right, like this holy of holies. And I just find it striking that she is present in um, this moment of his resurrection, right? It's this, um, what any ritual of rebirth is looking forward to is this resurrection. And so I think that she represents the presence of the mother um, in this process of rebirth and resurrection. Um, and that is part of the role of a priestess. Wow. I love that. It's so cool to think about because we like, as women, we're like walking, talking birth <laughs> potential. Um, you know, every month we menstruate like as a, a reminder of this life, death, life cycle and that a woman would be there at this like rebirth of, of Jesus in a way that's resurrection. How can we apply this in our life now? Like how do you see modern day uh, women kind of taking up this title of priestess? Yeah. So, um, in like the early relief society, um, I think that I think that Joseph Smith envisioned the relief society as this independent organization parallel to the priesthood organization that existed for men. The members of the relief society exercised gifts of the spirit, right? Some of them um, were composing these inspired songs, or some spoke in tongues, or had the gift of prophecy or healing. Um, they blessed and anointed the sick and blessed other women before childbirth. Um, and it was kind of debated about whether this was an exercise of priesthood power. Um, some people definitely thought it was. Um, Eliza R. Snow said that it was by virtue of the temple endowment that women did this right after they had been themselves anointed in the temple. Um, but if you look at it, these are all kind of priestly functions um, and women at that time who worked in the temple and gave these ordinances to others were called priestesses. That was the name for this role. And so I think that um, today women who are temple workers are priestesses. That's what they're doing. Like that is the word for that function. Um, and as priestesses, I think that we represent God when we perform ordinances, right? Um, when we are washing and anointing and blessing other women, um, like in the context of the temple, I think that we can think of Heavenly Mother washing and anointing and blessing her child, right? We're almost like standing in for that role in the context of, um, again, kind of this ritual of rebirth. I'm interested. Um, 
what do you two think? Do you, do you two have anything to add to that? What does it mean to you to be a, a priestess? I'm still like having my mind blown over here about the Holy of Holies and the garden tomb and like picturing, I don't know, because I've pondered on the Holy of Holies and how that is related to our divine mother. But for some reason, I had never connected it to the garden tomb, that that is the Holy of Holies containing the fruit of the tree of life, right? Like Christ himself and how he is the fruit of her womb. That is just blowing my mind. And so something that's like starting to kind of be born in my mind is like anytime we help anyone come to Christ or like facilitate this life, death, life, or this spiritual rebirth for somebody, we're, we're performing that role. So like I've heard of, you know, in birth, there's doulas, there's midwives, there's these birth workers. And I think there's equivalents, um, in spirituality and just in our like human development. So as we help each other to grow and to reach new ideas and new capabilities um, help them to grow in their capacity and their potential. I think that is doing the work of Christ and, and so performing the work of a priestess. I think it, it could be so much broader maybe than just like really specific rituals. I love that. Yeah. That is beautiful. Yeah, me too. Oh yeah. We've, we've talked about that before. Spiritual doulas, you know, um, something that, came to mind for me as I was pondering that question of, okay, what does this look like for me? And, you know, first I thought of what you said, you know, that we're, we can act as priestesses in the temple. So there's kind of these, there's these prescribed rituals that we've, that have been handed down to us and that change, you know, over time. But I also just thought about how at least many of the women that I know, including myself, we are just drawn to rituals, to creating rituals for each other. And some of those rituals that I've been part of have been like, you know, circles of song, like kind of like testimony meetings or um, drum circles, you know, that's like a ritual. Like we have this desire to, um, to facilitate initiations for each other through ritual. I know there's a group called like Utah women's circle right now that's been meeting like every month and we don't live in Utah, but, um, you know, we're just drawn to gather together and have these healing. Um, you know, our friend Jill, she, she can teach rituals about like releasing anger and using anger in a productive way. Like I think all of these are, kind of spiritual rebirth experiences and we ritualize them. You know, another thing that we've been talking about is, you know, as some of our daughters are reaching that age of hitting puberty, that we want to create a ritual that is meaningful and deep as they're like having this huge change in their life and becoming women. And, you know, I think that there have been ancient rituals and that unfortunately we've lost a lot of those. So we have to like kind of dig deep and inside ourselves and like figure out what that's, what that looks like and kind of look around us and say, what will you, what do you think? How would you do this? And, and, uh, anyway, just connecting all of that to being a priestess and initiating our younger children into adulthood in a way, like just being a mother is being a priestess. When you give birth, you know, Valerie Hudson says that that's an ordinance. Um, yeah, I think you really hit that on the head. I, I think the point of ritual is rebirth, right? And and where there is birth, I think that that's somewhere that we can see the mother. Totally. All right. Um so the last title I wanted to talk about is queen. A queen is a sovereign ruler. And there's kind of this concept of, of sovereignty that I've heard, I've heard a lot lately. And I kind of wondered how does that, um, 
I don't know, how does that connect with other things in in the gospel, in the church, right? And I think that it, it comes down to this, this idea of being queens, um, because we are daughters of the heavenly king and queen, right? It's in our spiritual lineage. And I think that um, we can develop this, this wisdom and, and inner authority to become queens as we understand um, kind of our, our inner nature is that we are children of divine parents. If we're looking into ancient Israel, it was the queen mother or the Gebira in Hebrew who held the highest institutional position in the royal court, um, only next to the king. Um, so an example of this would be um, Bathsheba. Um, she was typically the mother of the reigning king, and she was the one who chose the heir to the throne. Um, so she was... Um, her counsel was really highly valued um, on this matter of royal succession, as well as in judicial matters and in political mediation. Um, so she was just very, very highly respected and had a lot of influence um, over the kingdom. It was also thought that because she was the one who chose the heir, she enthroned the king, right? And so a picture or like a symbol of a throne represented the queen herself. Um, because she enthrones him, makes him the king. And so if we look at the tabernacle or um, Solomon's temple, the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant is a type of throne for the divine king. Um, And it can also be seen as a symbol for the queen mother. Um, Another role that she typically played was an intercessor on behalf of the people in her kingdom. Um, So she advocated for like, like on their behalf. Um, This could also be true of queens who were like the wife of the king, not just the queen mother. Um, So somebody like Esther would be an example. Um, And it's possible that the queen mother also played a significant religious function. We talked about how kind of in surrounding cultures, the queen was usually a high priestess. And so um, it's possible that the queen mother was also an earthly representative or kind of a surrogate for the mother God as well. She was kind of this earthly image of um, the heavenly mother. And so she was seen as authoritative in all these matters because she represented the mother goddess. And so the example I really want to look at here is actually Mary, the mother of Jesus. So kind of bringing it back to her um, in some Christian t- traditions, she's honored as an intercessor. Um, people appeal to her for mercy and pray that she will relate our hopes to God. Um, and this is not a part of Latter-day Saint tradition, but I think it's interesting to look at um, like Eastern Orthodoxy in particular has a really high regard for Mary and has developed um, all of these different titles and um, images of Mary that I think kind of represent this, this yearning for um, a mother God. And so one of these titles um, that she's sometimes given is Throne of Wisdom. And this means um, like this completely receptive place where knowledge is revealed. Um, So in iconography of Mary as the throne of wisdom, Mary is shown with Jesus sitting on her lap, right? So she is enthroning this this wisdom in Christ. And in in this icon, she represents the power and advocacy of the Queen Mother in enthroning the King of Kings. And so I think Mary, more than probably like any other figure in scripture, points us to Christ's heavenly mother. I think that she shows us what it means to be the queen of heaven and the mother of God. Um, And then today, it's kind of interesting because we are in a society where we don't really connect with the idea of royalty. Like we don't have kings and queens in the United States and you know, around the world, that's just not as big of a thing anymore. Um, But, and so there's not necessarily a modern example of a queen, but I think that we can become queens kind of like, like we talked about earlier, as we gain wisdom and personal sovereignty in making decisions. And when we claim authority over, over our own spirituality, 
as like a queen mother, we can give birth to the wisdom and the justice that we want to perpetuate in our own kingdoms, right? If our model is the queen of heaven, then we kind of have this way to visualize um, what it means to become a queen like she is and kind of more fully understand what it means to um, be children of, of God, of heavenly parents, because we are, as women, queens in training. What do you two think? What does it mean to be a queen? I love that example or that definition of a sovereign authority. Um, I think that's what you said. A queen is a sovereign authority. And mm-hmm. so we are, we become queens as we become sovereign authorities in our life. And I don't think that that means we exclude God from yeah, I don't know how to say that exactly. You know, sometimes I think when we say like, I'm sovereign, and especially in Protestant traditions, like that's how they describe God. God is sovereign and we are not. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to say, to claim that I am sovereign, you know, is like heresy, but, or, or to think that I can cast off God, but really it means that I don't, I don't rely on the arm of flesh. You know, I don't rely on other humans to define God for me or what an acceptable spiritual experience is or anything like that. Like my, my communication and my relationship is directly with God, with the source of my soul and heart. And so, yeah, in that way, I, I am a queen and in my home, I am a queen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I I don't think it's ever about like gaining power over other people or asserting that we don't need God. Um yeah, thank you for thank you for clarifying that. It made me think of Proverbs 31 where it describes this woman who the virtuous woman, right? Her price is far above rubies. And then it goes on to talk about how she is basically the queen of her house. She makes decisions on buying and selling and on her fields and she decides, you know, to wake up early and put on strength and she perceives her own merchandise that it is good. So this just speaks of sovereignty to me that like she's got her little kingdom, her little domain, right? Her home and she multiplies it and she it's like multiplying your talents and making what you have into what you want it to be. So that's that's what I aspire to is like, yeah, not necessarily that I want to control everyone in my family. I mean, I think a lot of us would love that if we could, <laughs> but really, ultimately, we just want to make our home a place of refuge and we want to create, right? Like we're born creatresses and so being in charge of our own affairs and knowing what's going on in our homes. And so I love thinking about that and how we're each a queen in our own right. I love that. I need to go and study that now. Thank you so much, Aspen, for like really diving into that for us and giving us those examples. And I'm sure that, you know, our listeners are thinking of their own examples of ways that they can claim that title, you know, and I think the, the overall message, those, those three titles, but the overall message is that like, if we can study the women in the scriptures and study and understand what we are to become, I mean, that is such a better roadmap for us. You know, it's it's at least a starting point for us to understand what or who Heavenly Mother is, and that our eternal destiny is really not to be consigned to the back room, you know, uninvolved and unheard. Yeah, and Christ needs us. That's the epiphany for me tonight, is that each of these roles, each of these titles centers on Christ, or Christ is at the center of them. Even this Proverbs 31, as I was skimming down further, it says, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Our praise comes from honoring Christ and we become associated with him and Christ needs women, right? He wouldn't have been born. He wouldn't have been anointed. He wouldn't have had his messengers to go and share that he was resurrected (laughs) 
without these these women who filled all those roles and he still needs the women we don't we shouldn't hide our light like Kate was saying we need to hold him up and yeah be that space that can contain him and can share him with other people thank you Aspen for all your research and your wisdom and this beautiful way that you've highlighted different ways that we can become more like our mother and have more relationship with Christ. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to talk to you. We just have one more question for you. We are interested in knowing how this search of Heavenly Mother and and the connection with Heavenly Mother that you've made, how has it changed you? Yeah. So for me, um, it's kind of set me on on a journey to explore a lot of questions that don't necessarily have um, definitive answers, right? No one is there like charting out a path for me. Um, Here's how you come to know Heavenly Mother um, or understand how to become like her. And so it's kind of this, this whole inner spiritual undertaking that, um, you know, in, in partnership with, with God that you get to take for yourself. And that's not something that um, can be learned another way, I think. And I, I probably should have said this at the beginning, but, um, you know, anything, I think anything in the scriptures can be interpreted and like applied in different ways. Right. And so the meaning that each person brings to it will be a little bit different. And so I never want to like assert that, anything I say is the only way of viewing it because I think that we each need to do that um, kind of inner inner spiritual journey to, to come to a greater understanding. And so ultimately it's really um, expanded the way that I think about God as both, as both mother and father and um, expanded the way that I engage with the scriptures as well. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that gift and insight with us. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it. And if you haven't yet, please leave us a review. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a monthly donation at anchor.fm slash image. We hope you'll tune in next Sunday for another inspiring episode.